at All Bodies Recovery, we give a platform for people to share their views and experiences freely. This sometimes means that people will express opinions that don't align with those of All Bodies Recovery. We hope you will bear this in mind and if you're concerned about any of the content that you've heard in the podcast, please get in touch. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Bodies Recovery Podcast. And today we're really happy to be joined by Ellen Maloney, who's autistic and has ADHD, and is going to talk to us about her experiences with eating disorder recovery and treatment. Thanks so much for joining us, Ellen. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, yeah. Um, do you want to sort of um, start off by telling us um, a bit about yourself and um, perhaps we can start with um, when you're when you first uh, realized that you were sort of struggling with with an eating disorder? Um, yeah, so um, I'm I just turned 40, which uh, seems a bit weird to say. Um, I'm currently studying at uni. Um, and that's kind of where I am now. <laughs> um, I first developed an eating disorder when I was 12. Um, I'd kind of grown up um, as a very anxious child, but like never had any kind of issues with food or um, like body image really, um, but just kind of very much like a perfectionist, very anxious. I needed like a very set routine every day. Um, would get very overwhelmed easily with like any changes to my routine, anything unexpected. Um, I played the harp when I was younger. Um, And when I say played the harp, I would be like seven years old, locking myself in my room and playing for six or seven hours, Um, which like in hindsight, I guess was maybe like a sign that... um, things were maybe not quite right um but because I always did well in school and things like nobody really picked up on anything um and then when I got to high school um my anxiety just kind of felt really really overwhelming and um I just stopped eating like it wasn't about weight it wasn't about food it was literally like now I understand it as kind of an autistic shutdown um because I also kind of stopped sleeping, stopped really speaking, stopped kind of engaging with anything. Um, But like from an outside perspective, it was diagnosed as anorexia because food, like that was the most kind of concerning aspect. Um, And I was hospitalized quite quickly because I stopped eating and drinking completely. Um, So that was like the age of 12 um and just because of the way things were kind of handled um like I was taken quite far away from home um I was treated like not terribly but like I was only 12 and I was already feeling very overwhelmed and very scared and so when and also I take things very literally so I had a nurse tell me um, if I tried to leave, I would be sectioned. And um, oh. well, at the time, I thought they meant a cesarean section. 
Oh. Um, so I was like terrified. <laughs> um, and so I started self-harm just again because I was so overwhelmed and like the whole thing was very traumatic. So I ended up spending from the age of 12 to 18 um, kind of just being moved from one hospital to another um, all over the UK, um, eventually ending up in a um, kind of, in, it was called the intensive care unit. Um, it was a locked kind of secure uh, psychiatric unit down uh, just outside London. Um, and I was there just, I got out about two weeks before my 18th birthday. Oh, wow. Um, so that's kind of like the teenage part. <laughs> and then I spent like the rest of my 20s and 30s in and out of treatment, um, primarily for like eating disorder, well, oh, definitely for eating disorder issues. Um, because by that time, kind of not eating was just a kind of coping mechanism. Um, and I was very, I had like quite severe OCD. Um, so it was never a like typical presentation of any eating disorder, but it kind of looked like it because I was obsessed with numbers and patterns and like not eating. So the kind of, it, it was very hard to unpack like what was OCD, what was autism and like, because I hadn't been diagnosed as autistic, um, it was just all kind of wrongly diagnosed and badly treated. Um, so I, I didn't get my autism diagnosed. I was diagnosed autistic when I was um, 38, so just a couple of years ago. Wow. And um, would you say that that, that that late diagnosis of autism has really had a massive impact on like your eating disorder, you know, your potential recoveries, your relapses would you say that that was something that impacted all that um yeah it's been it's it's been like overwhelmingly massive <laughs> um like yeah. it's really hard to kind of put into words like how much has actually changed in the last couple of years um partly like about five years ago i was diagnosed with ocd which um also was massive because again like mm. i I don't present typically um, for an OCD diagnosis, partly because of being autistic, but well, partly that because I can't, I don't always verbalize things like, I guess the kind of right way, not that there is a right way, but like the, the way needed to like meet the criteria and like get the right diagnosis and the right help. So for a really long time, I was just kind of told that like my obsessive thoughts would go away when I was like at a certain weight or like at a certain point in recovery from an eating disorder. And like, that just wasn't my experience. My experience was like relentless obsessive thoughts that were like driving me like to absolute despair, like to the point where I couldn't even like literally couldn't like have a conversation at points. Mm. So having the right diagnosis and getting medication for that was then like really kind of life changing for me. Um and was then it like kind of enabled me to kind of work on my eating disorder recovery. Um because for the first time I was like, oh okay, so there is a kind of life beyond these kind of thoughts. Um, and then getting the autism diagnosis 
was finally kind of like it was a lot to process I think for a long time I well forever I've kind of felt like there was something really wrong with me um and that people knew but didn't want to tell me um and then so finding out that like my hunch wasn't wasn't correct like nothing's wrong with me but like finding out I am different was kind of reassuring I guess yeah. um because it's quite like dismissive I think to kind of have so much therapy being told like if you do xyz then you'll be normal <laughs> or like normal people do this so if you eat like this then you'll be normal too and like that's just and very dismissive kind of treatment from what you've said yeah feel your diagnosis and then to have that diagnosis and then to have that really important validation that you know you you are autistic and that gives you so many answers and gives you so many whys I can imagine yeah and like I think it puts a lot of things into like a totally different perspective like for so many years, I, w I felt like I was being blamed for treatment not kind of working. And I was kind of labeled as treatment resistant and things. Oh. And like, I just kind of always felt like there was something blocking me from like recovering. And I, I didn't understand what it was. Yeah. And now in hindsight, I'm like, well, the treatment like is just not designed for brains that work like mine. Yeah. Absolutely. And in terms of, um, and you said obviously since your kind of diagnosis, which is kind of fairly recent, that that kind of enabled you to more easily kind of work on your um, kind of eating disorder. And I wonder just what things have been kind of helpful for you um, in, in particular. Um, yeah, so I guess like a lot of it has been around like self-acceptance, um, like think for so long I kind of internalized the message that if I did x y and z then I would be normal so it would fix that kind of sense that there was something really wrong with me and so I was just kind of like so I was like basically told kind of oh well if you eat cornflakes and toast every morning like that's what normal people do and like if you behave like this you'll be normal as well and like it was just so frustrating to kind of be going through these motions and still feel like there was something horrible about me um and so kind of looking back over that and kind of realizing like there's nothing wrong with me like everything I was told was like wrong um and kind of having to kind of undo all of that um and also things like so when in kind of, I guess, typical eating disorder treatment, they try and do a lot of stuff like make, working on making you more kind of flexible with like food and eating and like being able to go out with friends and like all of that is very good and very necessary part of like treatment. But like as an autistic person and what I didn't understand going through treatment and what I was made feel bad about was like those things don't get easier for me those things just get more distressing every single time and um 
again, like I would really push myself to do them because I would think like, I want to be normal. I want to have like a normal life. Like there's such an emphasis on like becoming normal in mm. treatment. And I was like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> and like, I still have these moments where I'm like, I just want to be normal. And I can't even like define what that really means, but like, I guess it's just like somebody that's not me. <laughs> Yeah. So I think like the most helpful thing has just been like accepting that what's normal for me is not the same as what's normal for other people. And like for me, it's okay to kind of eat the same things and have like a same routine every day. And like that's not a that's not a disordered thing. That's just how I function. That's like what keeps me like living my best life. And that's why I'm like it's not a bad thing. No. I completely not agree. Too. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're so right. I think in eating disorder recovery, there is often this this real kind of pressure to, you know, be spontaneous and flexible and all this kind of thing with food. But I think actually a lot of people who have actually never had experience of eating disorders often eat the same foods, like for breakfast and stuff. Like, you know, and it, it's strange, isn't it, that almost this, like, there's this pressure kind of in, in eating disorder recovery to do it when actually like a lot of people enjoy having similar foods, you know, I mean, for obviously a variety of, of you know, of different reasons, but it it is odd, isn't it? That there's still this like idea of this is what recover, recovery yeah. looks like, you know? It's... Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, as well, like the eating disorder treatment world is so far removed from like, the normal world like the actual mm. kind of reality like there's so many things that like you're forced to do because you're told that's what normal people do but when you look around like the kind of culture we live in again like there's like questionable like how well society is but like again mm. you're told in treatment like normal people do this and then you look around and like the way diet culture has kind of infiltrated every aspect of society you come out of treatment like and nobody is eating the way you're told a normal person is and you're just not really prepared for dealing with that yeah absolutely and I think you know you can see particularly in the UK there are just these you know growth barriers being put in place you know now with like you know calories on menus and stuff and you know restaurants of a you know that have a certain number of employees and and things like that as well and that's the I think you're, you're so right it's like there's I don't know it's almost it's like ivory tower kind of eating disorder thing where it's kind of not like you say so removed from the real world and yeah and like, experiences something I found really difficult in treatment was like I really like like rules and if I understand where the rules are there I will follow them like that is kind of how I function um mm. but I, I would go to one treatment center then to a different one and they all have so many rules in the dining room about like whether you can use a teaspoon to eat a yogurt or something but like the rules vary so much from one place to another like you might be allowed to cut your toast into four or only in two and like as an autistic person that kind of needs to understand why the rules are what they are I just found like it felt like these rules were kind of made up 
to annoy me personally. Mm. I would just be like actually so confused and it felt like I just kind of got in trouble constantly for breaking all the rules because I didn't understand them and I like it just felt like these people were like they would say like this is how normal people do xyz this is how normal people eat an apple um and I would be like I've I've never encountered somebody eating an apple like this and I just kind of confirmed the feeling I had already that I was like some kind of freak like I just felt like I was living in some kind of different universe that sounds really traumatic yeah I think like the whole concept of normal in treatment centers is like so problematic for so many reasons it doesn't it doesn't sound like the which which you know we've explored this and we know this but your story really confirms how the eating disorder system at the moment isn't set up for neurodivergent people yeah Um, we know that it's problematic anyway for you know so many different people for so many different reasons but specifically in this case like for it, I just, it just blows my mind that we know that neurodiver- neurodivergent people exist and we know that neurodivergent people absolutely need to be catered for because, you know, that, you know, it, that's just the basic, you know, we should be doing that. And we're not doing that at the moment in the UK. When, you know, one of our first questions when someone comes to us with a potential eating disorder should be um are you neurodivergent people should be exploring these things further rather than just going i I understand kind of like risk assessment wise when you're looking at an eating disorder you really want to treat the eating disorder but why isn't anything else being explored before those kinds of things take place it and i know the answer is probably something down to money and I don't know I'm quite skeptical with those kinds of things but it just blows my mind like listening to you thinking why wasn't this picked up why imagine how different things could have been yeah if you had your diagnosis earlier um do you do you have any thoughts as to why this wasn't picked up by professionals earlier um so I have so many thoughts just on what you just said. <laughs> um, first of all, like, I think there are people working within, like, um, policy and research and health care that um, would ideally like to screen everyone that comes into um, services. Wouldn't that be amazing? That'd be absolutely brilliant. It would be amazing. And I know it's happening in um, parts of Ireland. Oh, brilliant. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic to hear. Yeah. We just need it all over. Yeah, we do, like, really need to just roll it out. Part of the problem is um, the screening tools mm. are very expensive, mm. but not just the screening, but the actual training to assess people properly. Oh. I, don't, I don't think that is a great reason, personally. Um, I agree. Because I think, like, in the long run, it would be cheaper. Um, given that I've been in treatment for like 28 years and I'm not not alone in that. Mm. 
Um, but I do also think that like the screening tools we've got are not very good. And especially for people who also have eating disorders, because the physical and psychological effects of starvation or and or severe eating disorders look very similar to autistic traits. Mm. Um, so we don't have good screening tools that would differentiate um, between autism and eating disorders. Like personally, I would like to see just rolling out kind of mainstream accessibility um, and adjustments mm -hmm. um, as if everybody has like some form of neurodiversity. Because mm. um, I don't think like the kind of accommodations you would make are going to negatively impact somebody who's not autistic. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about this before. We said, you know, like the the current eating disorder recovery rates are not good. So something needs to change. You know, like it's, it's exactly. not like it's not working. So uh, yeah, completely agree. And every yeah. everyone is an individual. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. The the one of the problems though as well is that like services that are can are considered to be doing this well in terms of like screening and making adjustments and accommodations. Um, the extent of what they're doing is adapting the current treatment for autistic people, which I don't think is very good because first of all, the current treatments are not very good for neurotypical people. Mm. Um, and they're still coming from a neurotypical framework. Like you really need to be thinking from autistic people up, like mm -hmm. that's the system you're working within. Like, how do you work? Like, it's basically just adapting what's already there yeah. Um, rather than thinking first, like build something totally new. Mm. And yeah. the other thing is they're they're like really focused on things like sensory adjustments, like putting in duller light bulbs and quieter keys that won't jangle. Instead of rethinking again, like the whole narrative about recovery, like what's recovery for an autistic person? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and what are the conversations in the dining room? What are the conversations, like, in, like, body image groups? If somebody's got no kind of interoception, like, I just think there's not enough kind of autistic-led kind of changes. It's very kind of surface level. Yeah. I think that's, that's the problem we have at the moment. We don't, very, we don't have a person-centred approach in general it's something that we're seeing much more in private practice that uh, you know private practice therapists or dietitians or you know people who are eating dis disorder practitioners they are training as person-centered um you know in their approach yeah whereas when you look to the nhs although a person-centered approach is coming and there is training that's coming for that so I've heard of like training within midwifery where I am now for person-centered approaches. But um, when you have that, it's actually trying to put that in place within the systems that are already existing, which don't allow for a person-centered approach. I mean, when you've got someone who is going to a doctor who um, gets to start, you know, a doctor, you know, shouldn't really be diagnosing an eating disorder, but is worried about it, refers to that person on, they usually end up with um, CBT as yeah. just a one fit 
you know, kind of thing. Is is that necessarily appropriate? And that's definitely not person centered to just be going, ah, oh, let's give them a, a set of um CBT sessions and see where they're they're at afterwards, knowing that actually CBT can be really, you know, quite harmful and extremely problematic for probably I would uh, the more I'm, the more I'm listening to kind of stories, probably the majority of the people. To be fair, I know it's helpful mm. for some people, um, and you know those those people who it's very helpful for, then absolutely brilliant. But there is a huge chunk of people that it is really unhelpful for. Yeah, yeah, and in a way, I don't think it's surprising because the therapy itself was developed for depression for a start. Yeah. So yeah. why are we applying it for everything else? <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. It just it, it 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 but it's again this go to because it's seen as quote unquote cost effective, which doesn't mean effective. It just means for the small amount of money we throw at it, it's better than nothing. Well, a lot of things are better than nothing, aren't they? Like, it's not. I mean, like <laughs> I don't I don't think um it's even better than nothing for autistic people. There is like there's even statements from the Royal College of Psychiatrists saying yeah. it's like ineffective at best, but yeah. at worst. Oh, so. definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, I think for, for neurotypical people, for, again, some, you know, can be, be helpful. But absolutely, I think it's really concerning um, that it is still the go to, um, including for, you know, neurodivergent individuals. And I think, yeah. you know, really urgently needs 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 to change, um, you know, and like you say, something completely different, you know, that's, that's based on people's people's experiences is kind of built from the the ground up you know yeah yeah how do you do you think there's something i've been thinking about how how common do you think your experience is just in general do you feel as if it's something that has been experienced by quite a few people now unfortunately um anecdotally I would say that um a lot of the people I met kind of in my late teens and early 20s who had had a kind of similar path of Mm. multiple kind of hospitalizations through their teens and 20s and then kind of carried on um in and out of hospital and didn't really have kind of good experiences with treatment um um, again we're kind of labeled treatment resistant um and kind of severe and enduring eating disorder patients um and again just anecdotally I know of at least like about 10 to 15 people (laughs) that have been diagnosed as autistic um in about the last five years wow Um, I don't I don't know what's I do know now like because I speak a lot to like parents and carers groups um and I hear quite frequently that like young people have been diagnosed um Mm -hmm. when they've been in hospital for an eating disorder Mm -hmm. um but I don't I don't I don't really think it's like much better to be honest (laughs) um (laughs) I mean, because I also speak to like clinicians, and it's kind of like, well, well, what do we do? <laughs> and I, I don't really have much to, to say to them. Um, and I get asked like, what could people have done for you? And I'm like, 
I I don't know. Like, it kind of feels like you're identified as autistic and then just kind of, it's just kind of a label that's put on your notes and then there's there's kind of nothing after that, you know, at least with, with um, my OCD diagnosis, they were like, okay, so we know this medication can really help and if not, we can refer you to this clinic where they're doing this kind of treatment and like there's a kind of pathway but like with the autism diagnosis um I think if I was diagnosed 20 years ago I don't think I think I would have been I still would have been locked up in secure units like I oh wow I don't think it would have been any better than it was yeah it sounds like there's it sounds like from that there's a massive misunderstanding of neurodivergency with eating disorders. Maybe like a massive understanding that we need to be doing better in the first place and a massive understanding of there should be a pathway. There should be almost a trigger of, oh, so you're autistic and you've you've been experiencing an eating disorder for a long time now this is what we need to be doing with you now yeah like in some ways like it would be great to be screening people to come into an eating when they come into an eating disorder unit but by that point they're already in crisis like, yeah yeah how do we identify people like one of the problems is that the screening tools are ve are very much designed for boys um so a girl who's like very academic quite kind of sociable um is not going to be picked up for like being autistic because they're geared towards like the two-year-old who just plays in the corner with their trains yeah this is yeah. speaking to an even wider problem really isn't it yeah yeah mm. But by the time somebody gets into an eating disorder unit, like, oh yeah, it's not. It's definitely not too late to help them, but like, they're at kind of crisis point. Oh, definitely. It's thinking of it's. It's getting to a point where we're avoiding someone getting like actually being admitted into one of those units, and trying to find out. And I, I even think like, you know, we should be thinking about preventative measures for this kinds of things. But where you know, we're only just seeing emerging like emerging research about neurodivergency and eating disorders, I feel like and it shouldn't be this way. I feel like we're so far behind in actually going, OK, so how do we how do we prevent this from getting this far? How yeah, do we I, I also like screening yeah and I like so I was diagnosed with ADHD um a couple months ago um which like surprised even me because I guess all I knew about ADHD was like kind of the negative headlines I'd seen in the media and I've really not kind yeah. of looked into it or engaged in kind of that kind of conversation at all um but the OT I started seeing from the autism team was like Think you have ADHD and I just kind of had so I had the assessment um and I, I was really surprised to get diagnosed um 
and I haven't still haven't kind of engaged in the conversation about it at all so I don't want to say too much because I I don't have the terminology I don't really know much about it but I have done a bit of digging around about the link between ADHD and eating disorders and there is no research mm. but again like anecdotally and I mean like yes. I've seen there is a lot about like ADHD and binge eating yes um, and autism and ADHD I know could only be diagnosed as separate disorders since like 2013 mm -hmm. and the co-occurrence of autism and ADHD is like 70 percent so I was like in a meeting last week with um so I do some work with Scottish government um about eat the we had a review of eating disorder services last couple of years ago um and we're just kind of working on the implementation of that um and I was talking about I'm always talking about autism but I kind of threw in there about like we should be thinking about ADHD and they're all very supportive of the autism stuff but mm -hmm. they just kind of looked at me like we know we have nothing on ADHD and I was like so when I first started talking about autism I had these same looks they were like what what are you talking about we don't know anything like there's no research we don't have any kind of we've got no policies we've got no pathways and I was like we need to bring ADHD into this conversation as well we need to be screening for ADHD and they were like I've not seen any research on ADHD and eating disorders and I was like well we need to like we need to find it we need to do some like mm -hmm. and like it just feels like we're still so far behind in mm -hmm. terms of broader neurodiversity um, and all like ADHD, I think will be like five years from now, we'll be like autistic people also have ADHD and there's a lot there like we really need to be looking at. Yeah. Mm. And I think, you know, particularly in women, because I think, you know, like with autism still with ADHD there's like this stereotypical idea of this like you know yeah. quote unquote naughty hyperactive boy essentially right mm -hmm. so I think that's you know definitely said with you know, autism you need kind of better screening tools and just much earlier I mean you just think almost this stuff should be like routine you know like I think I mean you like you know you know you've got like young children that you know I know they, they have like you know various different like routine health things and you almost think like I, yeah I don't know and then the screening tools are just so inadequate like I don't think I would have been picked up for autism or ADHD yeah. I'm still surprised I meet the criteria for ADHD like maybe like I, I have no idea probably someone who's listening to this will be like no definitely ADHD <laughs> <laughs> I think it all comes down to it. Ju it just comes down to funding once again, doesn't it? It's one of those things where we just don't have enough people who have enough training. We don't have adequate training in general. You know, we we just don't have all of the resources there. And until you know the government actually goes, you know, the government talks about health and health policy. And you're like, oh, look what we're doing. And we're going to try and make everyone lose weight. Like, actually, rather than spending the money on those kind of policies, where we have a hell of a lot of evidence to show that those policies don't work, why don't you spend those money, that money on something worthwhile? 
Well, like, that's the thing know, as well. Like, yes. we've got like so much evidence about like the number of people, like the percentage of people with these disorders that don't recover, but mm. we never really dug into why. No, exactly. And they don't like doing that. The all of the policy stuff that I've looked at, they do not like going back and having a look at their numbers and going, okay, this didn't do well. Let's be critical about this. Why aren't we doing well here? We're spending all this money. We're trying to put all this policy into place and we're not doing well. Why? And what are we yeah. going to do moving forwards to try and make sure that's a different, that there's something that changes? Yeah, yeah. and taking responsibility for that as well. Well, the thing I is, like... I feel like it's very easy to blame the patients as well and blame them mm. as treatment oh, yeah. instead of yeah. saying, like, actually the treatment doesn't work. Yeah, and absolutely, absolutely. Because you see the language, like I mean, I've written, you know, research papers where they, you know, like you say, treatment resistant, non-compliant, all yeah. these awful, awful ways of describing. So shameful. People. Yeah, it's really, really. When it's not people's fault, it's no. You know, we've got, like you said, Emma. You know, we've got so our rates for people who are recovering and people who relapse, they could be better. Yeah. Like. And they've, they've, been the, they've been the same for like forever as well yeah. like it's mm. not like we've seen a trajectory of like well the treatment we're doing is like changing people's lives and like more and more people are getting better like no like it's the same <laughs> and why aren't people talking about this why aren't people going okay this isn't working why I, are we settling why are the people at the top of this settling and going you know this will do when actually we could be exploring so many different things we could be you know really leading the way with research for you know multiple identities like marginalized identities Mm -hmm. hey you know we could be making so much more of a change and we're not some of these things aren't even really that difficult to do okay they cost money but why not invest in proper person-centered care why why can't we just move away from that CBT model and actually start giving people what they really, really need, just literally as a basic, as well yeah. as doing those screenings? Because if we do that, think of how many more people are going to actually be able to recover sooner and not get to that crisis point where they end up having to go into some kind of units. Just... Oh, yeah and I think the thing is it starts with just saying okay you know what at the moment we don't know what yeah works right but you know what we're really committed to finding out and we're going to take this person-centered approach and listen to people and you know build build from there and and you know explore this and figure out what what does seem to be you know effective um it's not like you say Jeanette, it's not difficult to do and actually even just from a financial perspective in the long term it would save money <laughs> yeah it really would you know um so yeah it is it is really frustrating because it's it's so clear that what is currently being offered certainly doesn't work for neurodivergent individuals but doesn't work very well for anyone really apart from a small percentage of individuals so yeah it does. it does really, really need to need to mm. change. Um, I think we definitely need more training. I yeah. think we need to have better quality training for 
people who are autistic separately to people who have ADHD separately to, you know, we, we should be, rather than lumping loads of things together and doing a one hour workshop on something and be like, oh, I've been trained on this now, we should be investing in the time to do training on each, you know, on every, all of these ident- marginalised identities, to be honest, we should be doing that um, as professionals because we are going to be coming across um, so many different people with probably marginalised identities as well, especially yeah. in this kind of space. And then bringing in that lived experience, I mean, that would be the dream for us, wouldn't it, Emma? We, when people yeah. like start doing this and start taking on board, um, you know, less of this, I just treat the person in front of me and more of I need to know um, what kind of things are affecting you and I need to have a go at really trying to understand what things could be affecting you and the things behind that. And we don't get there unless we're listening to people and listening to lived experiences and listening to your story, Ellen. Um, And, you know, getting the training from good quality, you know, providers which hopefully will like more and more will come along. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just really traditional like models that we have, again, not only of eating disorders, but of, you know, kind of neurodiversity. I mean, I know, you know, myself, my, you know, my undergraduate degree was psychology. And when I was first taught about autism and ADHD, it was such a kind of like deficit approach. It was like, you know, these are these, you know, conditions they describe them and you know these are the things that people struggle with and it was all it was really really negative um and you know for for me what was really insightful I had a a placement year where you know we could work and I worked as a teaching assistant um in a school with um you know young people um who many of whom were neurodivergent and I learned so much through working with them and all the you know different um things that they were incredibly good at their kind of you know strengths all the different things they kind of offered and it was it was so interesting because it was so different to the way that I'd been taught about you know ADHD and and, and autism and I and I think that's the thing we've got unfortunately even when training does exist it's still this very dated deficit model and that really needs to go (laughs) definitely so I'm trying to think of a question really to wrap up with what do you think Emma yeah I mean I suppose you know we've talked a bit about um professionals and and things that you know they they need to be doing and researchers but I wonder perhaps maybe for someone listening who thinks that they um might be neurodivergent or who is neurodivergent and you know has an eating disorder if there's anything that you'd kind of say say to them um that might you know might be helpful um yeah so there is a great resource well I say great um it's the only resource um the peace pathway um i don't know if it's possible to post a link um but they're based at the south london and maudsley trust um and they are they've created a pathway for autistic people with eating disorders um and have made like a bunch of resources for um 
carers, professionals, and like people going through um, eating disorders. Um, some like kind of therapy type stuff, not like deep therapy, but um, kind of self-help stuff. Um, some kind of sensory kind of things, just some like really nice kind of stuff that I hadn't seen before, um, specific for people with eating disorders. And they also have a book. Again, it's got kind of, it's all kind of got the the vibe I feel personally that it is for like made for like based on the kind of neurotypical framework, but the website does have like the good stuff. Um, so those would be my suggestions, I think. Thank you. Yeah, we'll make sure those are in the um, the show notes. Um, sound like great, great resources. Obviously, there should be more of them, but they sound like a, a good starting point, at least, for, for people. Definitely. And that last, my last final question, um, how are you now, Erlen? Um, I am okay. Um, I am... <laughs> So I'm in like a pretty, I'm still like processing kind of the autism diagnosis. I'm like, so once I was diagnosed, That's my, yeah, so my, so once I got that diagnosis, my treatment team were like, well, I guess there's nothing, nothing more for us to do. Bye. Um, so I wrote this kind of whole big letter of not like a complaint, but like basically being like, I've been under eating disorder services for like 25 years um, and kind of been blamed for like treatment not really working. And now like you're just giving me another label and like being like, see ya. Um, I don't think that's very good. So um, I'm seeing a different therapist within the same team who I guess is kind of learning about autism alongside me, which again, not very good, but like mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm glad she's, doing it um i go to a peer support group um which is just autistic people it's been amazing um and now i'm finally seeing like an ot as well who's like helped me figure out like some of my sensory stuff because like i feel like that stuff's like really hard to kind of figure out kind of what what are some kind of triggers and what things help me calm down um so I'm like learning, I guess, about, I guess the biggest thing I've been learning how to do is kind of manage my energy. Like, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about autism and maybe ADHD, but like, I like autistic brains process a ton of information um, and aren't very good at like filtering out what's like not necessary information. Um, and so I, I'm learning, I guess, because I'm not trying to push myself to be neurotypical, how to like pace myself. Um, and for me, that's like, I study part time and I do like, like bits of like activism type stuff. Um, and I'm just kind of, yeah, trying to figure out like what I need to do to stay in good mental health. Mm. Um, and that means kind of managing being autistic which um yeah i'm still learning how to do i guess it's quite the journey yeah but at least you have the diagnosis now to be able to you know 
be on that journey and to learn and you know to kind of understand yourself better and I'm really glad that you got that diagnosis to be able to be in that in the place that you're at now yeah like it it's like still a lot of work to do but like I'm not fighting against something I didn't understand anymore and thank goodness because that must have been (laughs) 